We're now going to turn to the Word of God. If you um, have a Bible with you, or uh, if you have a Bible with you, it would be helpful to turn perhaps to the book of Judges. If you don't, please feel free to go and collect a Bible from the from either of the entrances that you came in. Uh, This is our third week in our series trying to sketch out the big picture of the storyline of the Bible. And in order to help us, we've um, been considering the theme, as I mentioned already, of God's kingdom and using a definition uh, of God's kingdom, which has been borrowed from someone else. This will come up on the next slide. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. We have seen God's kingdom design in creation. We have seen that design ruined by man's rebellion. We have seen the kingdom promised to Abraham. And we have seen how God started to build his kingdom by liberating the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, brought them into the promised land. They had even divided the land between the tribes. They had God dwelling with them in the tabernacle. And all of that took us to the end of the book of Joshua. The first six books of the Bible covered in just those three sentences. But I said, just, I said last week that the book of Joshua, it finishes with an uncertain note. You would think that, well, this must be, this is almost it. This is almost everything delivered and everything is going to be sweet and rosy from now on in. But the uncertain note at the end of the book of Joshua is we're left wondering, will God's people remain faithful and so know his blessing? Well, let's pick up in the opening chapter of the next book, the book of Judges. You can see from the opening words of that book that it is set after the death of Joshua. Joshua, their great military leader, has gone. And what is recounted for us here in this opening section is how the different tribes set about conquering and subduing their portions of land. And it all seems to go very well at first. But as the scale of Israel's efforts is expanded, there's some warning signs start to jump out to us, even from chapter 1. So, for example, if you look at verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Verse 21 The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites. And then from verse 27, it just really picks up pace. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites, and on and on it goes. Successive tribes, they did so much, but they They weren't able to clear the land for themselves. And we might think, well, that's not such a big deal. As long as they got most of it, maybe that's the way we should think about it. But the significance of this becomes really apparent in chapter 2 of Judges. And these verses are going to come up on the screen. The angel of the Lord comes and delivers a message to all of Israel. And this is how chapter 2 opens. 
I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. They had been disobedient. God had told them to go in and you aren't to have any kind of relationship with the people that are already in the land. It's to be yours. Tear down their altars. Don't make covenants with them. But they didn't obey the Lord. And the remainder of the book of Judges presents what's often described as a downward spiral as Israel descends into a deeper and deeper mess. And you have a recurring pattern throughout, um, which I want to take time to, to, to point out to you, and then you, you'll be able to see yourself how it's repeated. Um, in the next slide, we have that, that pattern, but I don't want to just um, tell you what the pattern is. Go ahead and bring it up, Samuel, thanks. Um, this is the, the recurring pattern, but I want to show you um, for yourself exactly how this works. So chapter 3, the first judge who's mentioned is by the name of Othniel. And let's just observe this pattern. We'll keep this on the screen and you can see where I'm getting this from. From verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So point 1, Israel rebels. Then, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Point two, God is angry. So that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. So they rebel, God is angry, they're handed over to their enemies. But when they cried out to the Lord, which is point four, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. God provides a deliverer. And so, when you come to verse 11, so the land had peace for 40 years. And there's that cycle is going to be repeated and repeated again in Judges. But each time it's repeated, it seems that the depth of Israel's sin, the seriousness of Israel's condition, gets worse and worse every time. Uh, one of the ways that's seen is the escalation in how long Israel was oppressed. So in that portion I read, they were oppressed for eight years. But then further down in chapter 3, the Moabites oppressed them for um, 18 years. In chapter 4, the Canaanites oppressed them for 20 years. And when you come to the last of the judges, uh, Samson... The Philistines oppress God's people for 40 years. The scale of the problem just gets bigger and bigger with every repeated cycle. And maybe Samson is worth pondering for a moment, the most famous of Tom Jones' judges. Because these deliverers of Israel, they were flawed people. For example, Gideon in chapter 8, as good as he was, he sets up an idol and the people worship it. In chapters 10 and 11, Jephthah makes the rash vow to offer his daughter as a burnt offering. Uh, 
But I think Samson is the epitome of the failed judge. He was a special child. He was dedicated to the Lord from his childhood. He he was a Nazarite, which uh, was a way for someone to dedicate themselves to the Lord. And there were certain characteristics that marked out someone who committed themselves to the Lord in this way. That included uh, abstinence from wine. Uh, It included avoiding dead bodies. And it included as the real standout, never cutting his hair. But as we follow the story of Samson, as mighty a man as he was, and as used by God as he was to defeat the Philistines, to rescue Israel, great feats of strength, as we follow his life one by one, each of these hallmarks of being committed and dedicated to the Lord, he breaks them. He breaks every one of them. And it is finally when he tells Delilah the secret about the hair. That's the last one to be broken. And it's almost the end for Samson. And in this book of Judges, from the death of Samson onwards, there is a repeated phrase that highlights the state of this nation. It first appears in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And you find that same idea repeated again in chapter 18, chapter 19. And in fact, the very last words of the book of Judges are what? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It is a picture for us of lawlessness. It's, it's a picture of anarchy in the nation. It's a picture of God's people breaking God's covenant. But despite this tragic time of decline for Israel, you come to this point in your Bible and there is great hope in the midst of it all. Because immediately after the book of Judges, there's a small book that you could easily, you could easily just skip over. And in fact, to get the, the narrative story of, of the nation of Israel, you would be tempted to skip over the little book of Ruth. But it's an important book. Uh, you look at the first verse of the book of Ruth, and we see that it's well placed in our Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled. This, this short book... It's set in this difficult time, the time of the judges, this time of lawlessness and anarchy. And it's a book, as you start to read it, that opens up with great sadness. Naomi and her husband take their two sons to the land of Moab in order to find some relief from the famine. But no sooner do they arrive in Moab than Naomi's husband dies. And there she is in a foreign land left with her two boys. Two boys marry Moabite women. That is, women who are not from the the children of Israel. And after ten years in Moab, both of Naomi's sons die. And here's Naomi left with her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi determines that she needs to return home. She's going to head back to Bethlehem. And she encourages her daughters-in-law, go back to your own homes in Moab. 
You stay there. I'll head back to where I'm from. But one of her daughters-in-law refuses to leave Naomi. Her name is Ruth. Listen to her words. These will be on the screen, but you'll find them in chapter 1, verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth becomes a follower of the God of Israel. Though she is not an ethnic Jew, though she cannot claim to belong to the twelve tribes of Israel, she comes to Israel to serve the true God. The story unfolds that the misery of Naomi's situation, that of of seeing her husband's family line come to an end, that whole situation is redeemed by a man named Boaz. He's a relative, and he purchases everything that belonged to the family, and he takes Ruth, the Moabite convert, to be his wife. He rescues her from her poverty. He rescues her from being a social outcast. And Naomi's family will live on. And in fact, how important that principle is in the book of Ruth is seen by how it ends. It ends with a genealogy. Um, If I pick it up in verse 21, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. That is King David. Israel's greatest king came from this unlikely intervention. It came from the line that includes this foreign girl from Moab. In fact, indeed, if you, if you go to your New Testament, the, the genealogy that opens your New Testament, you'll find that It's a genealogy that extends beyond David, ending with Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Despite the bleakness of the scene at the time of the judges, God is at work. He's preserving a remnant of his people. He is preserving the godly line that is ultimately not only going to lead to King David, who we're going to encounter in a moment, but it's going to lead to the Savior. God is able from the darkness of those circumstances because of his sovereignty to bring about something which will be for his glory. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. You know, we see so much of darkness around us and we begin to wonder if we can expect to see God do anything. Even in the darkest of situations, even when there's no no king in Israel and every man does what is right in his own eyes, God is at work. God is still sovereign. God is still able to save and to rescue. After Ruth, we come to the books of Samuel. And it's in the, books of, in the book of 1 Samuel that we see Israel transitioning from being what seems to be a disparate group of tribes into becoming a kingdom, that is, a nation with a human king. The central figure in helping them to make this transition is a man by the name of Samuel, someone who was, again, singled out by God 
from his childhood. He was brought up in the care of Eli the priest. But the Lord called him to be a prophet and to be the final judge of Israel. And again, it's encouraging that God is evidently at work because the scene into which Samuel enters is really a grim one. We saw that things in the book of Judges were bad. And here in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, we see just how bad. The Philistines, they defeat Israel in battle. And Israel's commanders come up with a new tactic to try and beat the Philistine hordes. But what they do exposes what is wrong in Israel. They decided that they're going to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. The Ark of the Covenant was one of those key pieces of furniture from the tabernacle that was placed in the most holy place. It symbolized God's presence. When God came to dwell in the tabernacle, this was his throne. And so the logic goes, if we take God's throne with us into battle, then we will be taking God with us into battle, and who could stand against us? Well, the Philistines showed them. In chapter 4 of this book, the Philistines crush Israel. They kill 30,000 men including Eli, the priest's two sons. And would you believe it, they capture the beloved ark, the very throne of God they take away to their own land. It's hard for us to grasp just how earth-shattering this turn of events was for the Israelites. But listen to the reaction when the messenger comes back. This is in chapter 4. Um, And we're going to read from verse 18. Samuel will put this on the screen for us. The messenger comes back and he delivers the news to Eli. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. I'm sure there's many lessons that you could draw out of that. But... Eli had been told about his sons dying, but it was the news that the ark of God had been captured that rocked him off his perch, and he died. And if you read on, you find that Eli's daughter-in-law was heavily pregnant, and that's the the verse uh, also on the screen there. Um, The news sent her into labor, and she died in labor. But as the child was born, she named him. And it's this that sums up just how bad things are in Israel. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. So much hope, so much promise. God's people were in God's appointed place, but the glory of the Lord has departed What a danger it is for God's people. To have all of the the physical trappings of being God's people. But not to have God in their midst. And what a danger it still is for God's people. You and I. To be going through the motions. Maybe that's as a church. As long as we keep doing things in this way. God will keep blessing us. Maybe that's as individuals. 
So long as I keep going to church, so long as I keep reading my Bible or whatever good thing we might do or have, then God will bless me. But if, if doing these things doesn't affect who we are and doesn't affect how we live, then what is it? Because this was the great problem of Israel back here in 1 Samuel, that they felt it didn't matter how they, how they behaved, it didn't matter what kind of people they were, as long as they had the ark, they would be fine. What dead religion. It's an encouragement to us. You know, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, these things that have been recorded about Israel, they're there for our warning. They're there to teach us. And I think the lesson here is, we must never stop seeking the Lord. Amidst all of the other things that we do, and all of the ways that we express ourselves as Christians, we must never allow ourselves to be distracted from seeking the Lord. We must never allow ourselves to be distracted from cultivating that relationship with the Lord. Lest we have all of the good things, but the glory of God is gone. And so we come to Israel's appointing a king. As I mentioned, the book of Judges had that repeated refrain, there was no king in Israel. And the writer of the book of Judges, the way that that's written, it's as if he's saying, not having a king was contributing to the disorder in society. It's as if he's saying, Israel needed a king. But if that's what he's saying... Why, when we come to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, when the people come to Samuel, their prophet, and say, we want a king, why would Samuel be so unhappy with them for making that request? Well, let's have a look at the request that they make. I'm going to read from verse 5. They said to Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They want a king to lead them. They want a king just like the other nations have. And Samuel, he takes his anxieties about this to the Lord. And in verse 7, the Lord replies, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Here was the problem. The Israelites wanted a king instead of God. When really what they should have sought was a king who would serve under God. And if you still doubt me, you could look back at the law, Deuteronomy 17. You'll need to just take a note of this. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, Moses gives guidelines for how future kings of Israel should behave. There was no uh, barring them having a king. It was the kind of king that they wanted that was the problem. They should have had a king who was under God's rule, a king under God's leadership. That's what they needed. But instead, they wanted a king who would lead them instead of God. And God gives them what they ask for. Samuel anoints Saul 
as the first king of Israel. A physically impressive man. He's head and shoulders above all of his peers. And it all starts so wonderfully well. He's mighty in battle. He secures victory. He rescues the oppressed cities. And he seems to have it all. He's the perfect king, so it seems. But there is something that this man utterly lacks. He does not understand what it means to follow God. And this is seen in a number of events that we might be tempted to think are quite minor failings that he shows. But they really do reveal a lot to us. For example, in chapter 13, King Saul takes up the job of the priest because he's impatient that Samuel isn't coming when he said he would come and he, he, he offers the offerings before the Lord, something that's restricted to the priesthood. But then a couple of chapters later, chapter 15, God wants his people to be his instruments of judgment on the Amalekites. They are to utterly destroy everything that belongs to the Amalekites, every human, every animal, every potential piece of plunder. It's all to be destroyed. Nothing left. But Saul and his men, they go in and there's some things that they're just not willing to destroy. They they keep the king alive. They keep the best of the livestock. And throughout chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, he keeps protesting to Samuel that I have been obedient. I have done what the Lord said. I only kept these good animals so that I could make a sacrifice to God. And then came Samuel's famous reply. You find them in verses 22 and 23, which are up on the screen for you there. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams because you have rejected the word of the lord he has rejected you as king this was a lesson that saul just never seemed to grasp when god speaks god's word is authoritative when god gives his word it is precious God is not a God who says, well, you made a decent effort, that'll do. God gave instructions. And Saul seemed to think that, well, as long as we get the gist of what's been asked for, that'll do. And so God rejects Saul. And he appoints for Israel the right kind of king. One who he has described back in chapter 13 as a king After his own heart. Samuel is sent to go and find and anoint this next king. He goes to the house of Jesse. And there seven sons are passed before him. But none of these will be the next king of Israel. And then he's told, well there is still the youngest. But he's tending the sheep. This youngest, seemingly most insignificant seemingly least qualified. He's the only one left. But this is God's man. The Lord confirms to Samuel, this is the king. 
Samuel anoints him. And we're told that from that day forth, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Great King David. The rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we have David growing in prominence. He is the unlikely slayer of the giant Goliath. And his increasing reputation for military prowess, it kindles jealousy in the heart of Saul, who tries to kill David. And the bulk of the rest of this, of this book of the Bible, we have David on the run from murderous King Saul. And Saul is an increasingly tragic picture. He becomes more desperate. He becomes mentally unstable. And the scriptures would have us see that it's because he will not submit to God's revealed plan for his nation. Saul is determined to hold on to the crown. He's determined that his son and his son's son will inherit the throne of Israel. But God has other plans. Saul reigned for 40 years. And tragically, in the last chapter of this book of the Bible, he's facing defeat at the hands of the Philistines. And so he takes his own life. Israel had been given the king that they desired. And it was a disaster. And in fact, it takes them right back to where they were before Saul was anointed king. Defeated by the Philistines. They've made... No progress. But then David comes to the throne. He would be a king who recognized that he wasn't the final authority. God was. He was under the supreme kingship of God. And the heart of this man is revealed quite early on. Um, In 2 Samuel chapter 1, someone comes to deliver the news to David that Saul had died. And puts this strange spin on the story, which is almost as if he tries to claim some credit for helping to take the life of King Saul. David didn't congratulate him. He didn't say, oh, well, thank goodness, I'm now safe. I can now claim the throne for myself. No, David had this man executed. Because Saul, after all, was the Lord's anointed And instead of rejoicing, David writes a beautiful hymn of lament in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel. A lament for Saul and for his son, Jonathan. Let me read some of that from verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. The man who had pursued David for his life for years. David's priority is to establish God's kingdom. So he establishes Jerusalem as the new capital. And he brings back the Ark of the Covenant into the city. Symbolizing God's presence Returning as this God-fearing king leads the people back to their God. David's heart was for God. And we're going to have to close by taking a quick look at chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. His heart was after God. Let me read to you the first two verses of, of 2 Samuel 7. 
after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. You see David's heart here? He wants to build a dwelling place for God. But what follows is one of the most important sections of the Old Testament. Because it's in this chapter that God makes a covenant with David. Now, if you've been with us in recent weeks and months, we've, we've quoted this a few times when we've been going through our series in the book of Isaiah. In essence, God doesn't want David to build him a house. Instead, God promises to build David a house, to build him a dynasty. But the significance I want to take time to point out is what's said about David's offspring. So I'm going to read from verse 11. Again, these, these words will come up on the screen. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You could read on and it would become really evident that that some of these words are immediately fulfilled by David's son, Solomon, the next king of Israel. But we are left asking questions. How could the son of David have a throne that is established forever? How could that be? And there's also a huge significance In God saying, I will be his father and he will be my son. It's a very important concept in the scripture. In Bible times, fatherhood was about more than DNA. It wasn't just a biological thing. There's a sense in which people were defined by what their father did. Uh, For example, in the Gospels, you would find Jesus is described as the carpenter's son. Uh, Paul would write about those who are of faith are sons of Abraham because they share in those characteristics. And so to say that someone is their son is to say that they will be like them. God promises here to David a king who will reign on David's throne, but will reign like God. Now you can read on in the chapters that follow. You'll find it's not Solomon who fulfills that, nor any of his offspring in the Old Testament. In fact, the remainder of this book is taken up with waiting for this son of David who will be called the son of God to establish his kingdom. There's an old hymn which I have never sung but it opens like this. Hail to the Lord's anointed great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression 
to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. This chapter here is again pointing us forward. Not forward to Solomon, pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. Great David's greater son. The one who is the fulfiller of all of these promises. We could have taken time to point out all of the parallels in this covenant with the promises God made to Abraham. They're there. I'll make your name great. I will give you a land. I will give you peace. All of these promises there. God's plan has not yet been fulfilled. Despite the greatness of King David, there's still a work to do. And it's God who's going to do it through Jesus Christ. Be encouraged that the scriptures are not some disjointed collection of books. They have a single message. And they point us to King Jesus. And it's how we respond to him that determines whether we really grasp this message or not. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that all of Scripture points us to him. Lord, we look at all of the, of the good, godly men that we've mentioned tonight in the Old Testament. And yet, Lord, we can see their failings. We can see that they are not adequate saviors for mankind. But as we look to great David's greater son, we rejoice that we find one who is perfect in every way. We rejoice that we find God himself come to save his people from their sins. And Father, we pray that as we look to Jesus tonight, Lord, that we would see him with fresh eyes. Lord, that we would be, we would be rejoicing and encouraged by all of the ways in which we see him foreshadowed in your word. We thank you that all of scripture speaks of him. Lord, may our response be for all of our lives to speak of him also as we return our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.